One Nation's been the only consistent political party for the last 20 years. They're not talking about you. Alright, well let me tell you, One Nation is talking about you. Immediate run away from One Nation. They're too scared to ask us any questions, mainly because we're straight talkers and we've got the answers. This is like a call to arms. You guys need to start making the real decisions and who you're going to vote for. Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of The Ex Candidates. My name is Stephen Tripp, and as always, I'm joined by Adam Zara. How are you going, Adam? I'm pretty good, Stephen. How are you going? I'm pretty good, thank you. And tonight we have uh, Professor James Allen on. How are you tonight, Professor? Thank you, guys. Thanks for having me, Adam, Stephen. Yes. Uh, thanks uh, for your time, um, James. Really appreciate it. Yes. No, we're, oh, we're very excited you. to have you on. You're, you're the you're Garrick Professor of Law at Queensland University. Uh, you're also uh, um, quite well known. You, you, you write for The Spectator. Uh, we both saw you speak at CPAC and uh, also the Friedman Conference as well. Uh, so we thought you have we, we found you extremely interesting to listen to. So we thought we'd have you on uh, just to hear. You guys are like my mom. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're just being honest. But uh, one of the things that you were talking about at CPAC is you, you're giving your uh, personal experiences of being uh, working in a university and and uh, the way it is at the moment. You know with a lot of conservatives kind of pushed out or silenced uh, and, the, you know, the left kind of have a stranglehold of the universities and the institutions more broadly. Can you just give us a little bit of uh, an insight of what it's like on the ground in universities at the moment? Sure. Well, I mean, we know we know in, in the U.S. when you give money to a political party, that's public information. So they, they can track uh, university professors in the U.S. and so in law schools, in the Ivy League, say the top American law schools, it's something like nine or ten to one Democrats to Republicans. In the non-Ivy Leagues, it's higher. And then, then there's 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 whole parts of the university. Think women's studies. Think you know Aboriginal studies, sociology, big chunks of politics, where you really or psychology, where you really don't see any conservatives at all. Very few. Um, partly. This is not done overtly. It's done indirectly. Uh, you know, if you have to get a grant to get promoted and you say you're against stopping the boats or you're in favor of stopping the boats or in favor of traditional marriage or pick any conservative position, you're not going to get a grant. You're just not. Um, and then you have a whole bunch of things that, you know, would make it almost impossible to get an administrative job. Now, I don't want to be a dean of law, but deans of law have to start every sort of meeting with an acknowledgement of country. I think they're condescending, they're patronizing. They're really an exercise in virtue signaling. Nobody takes them seriously in the sense that, you know, you don't see these vice chancellors in universities with their seven-figure salaries. You don't see them, you know, giving their home. They're not putting their money where they're, they don't give their home um, to some Aboriginal person. You know, either, you know, you're living on stolen land or you're not. And so it's just a, it's, it reminds me of the 39 articles, you know, 120 years ago, if you went to Cambridge or Oxford, you had to purport to be an Anglican and, and you know, subscribe to the 39 articles. Nobody took it too seriously as long as you were prepared to genuflect. It's a bit like that. Everyone mouths these words. When you actually listen to what they're saying, it's incredibly condescending to Aboriginal. I can't stand it. So I would never do that. So you could never, you would never get a job if you weren't prepared to do that. 
as an administrator, right? You could say you could refuse to stand up for the Australian national anthem. You'd still get a job. Yeah. You could still do it. Um, you know, there's almost nothing on the left that would foreclose you. But if you had uh, sort of my set of views, you're just not getting a job in administration. Leave aside their horrible jobs. Australian universities look like a sort of mild version of East Germany. They're the most centralized, top-down, one-size-fits-all. This is what brings actually conservative academics and lefty academics together. We all hate the bureaucracy. Now, Australia is insane with its bureaucracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, just just with the whole idea, you know, with the even when we were there um, for the Friedman Conference, you know, they didn't even have an Australian flag flying in the hall. They had a transgender flag, the Torres Strait Islander flag, and the Indigenous flag, and the gay pride or the transgender pride flag. I mean, it's an Australian institution, and you know, I don't understand how we can't. You know, it's not making any sort of we're not teaching our children or our students like patriotism at all. No, no, it's a, it's just an exercise in sort of virtue signaling and, you know, victim. We're teaching, we're sort of teaching kids to, to be victims, which is, which is terrible. Um, look, there's parts of the university that are fine still, sort of engineering, math, uh, medicine, sort of. But if you look at the evidence from the U.S., even those are starting to succumb to the, the sort of woke ideology, the whole bureaucracy around diversity and inclusion. You know, they don't want diversity of outlook. And the kind of diversity you sign up to is just, it just creates an orthodox outlook. So people like me, I don't sign up to their diversity outlook. I don't, you know, I don't agree that the science says that you know, that the, the transgender men are women. You know, every everyone with a scientific brain knows that's false. Every cell in your body either has XY or XX. Leave aside the one in the million who have XXY, right? And so this idea that somehow superficial operations and a lot of drugs somehow, you know, you can mimic it. And I don't really care what people do. Wait till people are 18. They can do whatever they want. I'm not sure I'd let the taxpayers pay for it. But, you know, if they want to do it, fine. But let's not let's not pretend you're the you're on the side of science. These people are not on the side of science. We saw that through lockdowns where they were wrong on just about everything, and they were thugs and they were despotic. And you know, I went into the university every single day. There were a couple of us, but it was obvious if you read the data from early on that the lockdowns uh, were a terrible idea. We're paying the price now. Scott Morrison was one of the worst prime ministers in Australia's history, in my view. And indeed, the whole Liberal Party was a, the kind of people who, you know, they, they go and they get a job with the IPA. I love the IPA. It's a great organization, the Institute for Public Affairs. But they come out and they get pre-selected for the Libs and they talk a great game on liberty. You know, where was uh, Smith and Patterson when it really mattered? They weren't there with the Antic, Alex Antic, I'll tell you. They were a disgrace. And I, I say that uh, explicitly. There was no commitment to freedom and no commitment to leaving people to make their own calls. Mandates, disgraceful. So, and I spoke, I think the uh, Australian Spectator was, it's, it's got a reputation around the world for having stood up against lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. You know, we haven't really accomplished much. <laughs> I think more people realize we, we were right. It's not like we've changed the world. No. I still see people with masks on and driving and they're in the car by themselves. You know, yeah. I don't really see the theory of virology they're working on where you're in the car by yourself with a mask. 
I spent a couple of years during lockdown just reading a lot of these studies. You know, there's no evidence yet that masks work. Uh, there's no randomized control test that shows they work. And it's sort of a form of virtue signaling where you show you're part of the elect and yep. you're a good person by wearing a mask, but you're not, you know, you're basically an idiot. Yeah, I, um, yeah. I, I've, I've had to make a few speeches in front of people as well, you know, regarding, you know, the mandates and especially recently, the last few weeks. And I say the same thing. I mean, I don't hold any contempt for people who wear masks because I just believe that they've, they've just fallen for the, the trick. They've just been tricked and they've just been duped and scared. Yeah, I mean, the press acted as a sort of mild version of Pravda. We, even the Australian, they were the daily death counts. There's more people dying now than during the pandemic. Australia yeah. has a terrible, you know, the, the one statistic you cannot game are excess deaths. It's hard to know how many people died with COVID versus because of COVID. But the one thing that no one can game is you look at how many Australians died, you know, on average between 2015 and 2019, and that gives you a baseline. And then you see how we're doing. And you look at cumulative excess deaths. So that's deaths above what you would expect. You know which country has the lowest excess? It's Sweden. Anders oh, yeah. Tegnell should get a Nobel Prize. They got everything right. And, you know, we, we, have, we, do not, we, we have worse excess deaths in Sweden. When, when people like Morrison go and say we handled COVID, well, we did not handle COVID. You cannot let people get away with that. Even on the one criterion they cared about, which is, you know, deaths of old people, we're not doing, we're not doing as well as people who didn't lock down countries. And so when you start adding in other things, so these are, many of these deaths are from suicide, from alcoholism, um, from missed cancer checks. Kids' lives were ruined. It was the best two years ever to be a billionaire. You know, I'm a small government right-of-center guy, but during the pandemic, I almost felt like I should be a communist because we were taking money from the poor and giving it to the rich. We had yeah. asset inflation because yeah. we were printing money. You know, people say, John Howard says, Josh Frydenberg was a good treasurer. He was a terrible treasurer. You know, they did everything to spend money like crazy. We are suffering right now a cost of lockdown sort of crisis in terms of the way our economy works. We spent like drunken sailors, except, you know, drunken sailors spend their own money. Yeah. And these people are spending our money. Yeah, that's right. And so, you know, I'm just, I get mad when I think about it. We sent money from the poor to the rich. We sent money from the young to the old. People who missed two years of school, if, you, if you're not from a middle-class family and your mom stayed home every day and helped you at school, you're fine. Yep. But poor kids, you know, they're screwed and they'll never catch up. And the evidence, even the New York Times is saying was a terrible mistake to close the schools. And, you know, Morrison is there making up out of thin air a national cabinet because he didn't have yep. the cojones to make decisions. He didn't take the Section 92 challenge to keep the borders open. We were the only country in the world that wouldn't let its own citizens leave the country. You know, this was just a disgrace. To... And so then you start to wonder, how is it possible for Dan Andrews to win this election in Victoria? Thug, despot. Well, because the, you know, the liberal opposition, they don't disagree with them on anything as far as like, they're going to have $2 public transport. <laughs> Where are their attacks on this man? They're not, they don't seem to be in existence. How how yeah. are you so incompetent that you can lose an election to Dan Andrews? I just don't know. Well, we're we're we're, we're the same. Like I've been doing a bit of you know like little bit of looking and digging into it in between you know when I get a spare chance, 
And um, when I watched the Peter Credlin report that, that she did, the the the, um, the cult of Dan Andrews or whatever it was, um, you know, like the the things that the, just just on that report alone, which should make him not not win. You know, I mean, Peter Credlin's pretty. Yeah, I, I have disdain for the Liberal Party. You know, and I'm a right of center guy, but the Victorian Liberal Party disdain for. But I still want them to beat Dan Andrews. And yeah. Dan Andrews is just. How the voters can reward that man, but again, as you say, they they were they were fed a steady stream of sort of ABC type news. Norman Swan, who hadn't practiced medicine thirty years, you know, against him were the three people who wrote the Great Barrington Declaration. So Professor Sunetra Gupta at Oxford, probably the best epidemiologist in the world, she's got the chair of theoretical epidemiology. Jai Bhattacharya at Stanford and the Kulturf guy at uh, at uh, Harvard. And, you know, these people have way more, I'm not into credentialism, but they have way more credentials than, than uh, you know, some public health officer in Australia who came bottom of his or her medical class and has been in the public service for 30 years. I'm being a bit facetious, but effectively, they all of a sudden found themselves, you know, in the public spotlight and decided that, you know, if you, if you go to a, a football game and catch the football, you're at risk. No, you're not. Playing yeah. golf is a problem. No, it's not. You know, these people were just making it up. Yeah. These people had no clue what they were talking about. They based their their claims on modeling that has been shown to be wrong by orders of magnitude. We should all be very angry about this. People mm. lost their livelihoods, their businesses. Yeah. You know, they didn't get to see their parents die. I'm really mad about it. And I, I, I'm not going to get un, unmad about it. Um, you know. Let, let's put it this way. If someone apologizes and said I made a terrible mistake, we can move on. Yep. I haven't heard that from very many people, almost no one. No. Even the sort of supposed right-wing writers on the Australian newspaper. Who who actually came out against the uh, lockdowns? Well, Adam Creighton was great, the American correspondent, and Steve Watterson was fantastic. And that's it. That's yep. it. And even on Sky TV, you know, there was uh, – the Outsiders show, Rowan Dean, but, you know, the regular correspondents and, and reporters for Sky, they were just as bad as the ABC. Yeah. Yeah, well, Alan Jones yeah, got Yeah. Yeah. You know, Alan, Alan Jones got taken Tell off Sky. I need, to, I need wine to liquidate my uh, anger. Anyway, <laughs> there you go. It's a nice Californian Chardonnay, you know, buttery. Yeah, and the, but, but what do you think happened? Because if we look at the... COVID period. If you look at before the COVID period, you had Trump elected, you had Scott Morrison win supposedly the un unwinnable election, you had Bolsonaro in, in Brazil, and then all of a sudden COVID hits and it seems like every election since in within Australia and, and New Zealand and other, other parts of the world, the left have got in. So what do you think happened? What, yeah, what you forgot Boris who completely crumbled under the pressure of COVID. Yeah. Look, they weren't, they didn't have the cojones to stand up to the sort of, they I think everyone knows the public service leans left almost as much as the universities. And you're not, in a sense, you're getting advice that favors the left-wing views. So if you go back to October of 2019, the WHO had a pandemic plan that was based on 100 years of data going back to the Spanish flu and right after the First World War. And the Brits had a plan basically the same. It said never lock down, focus attention on the vulnerable, um, leave people to make their own decisions, right? And so that's what Tegnell did in Sweden. So I just copied the plan that was now between November of 2019 and March, so four months, 
no new data came in. All they based their change on is what they saw in China, where they were welding people into their homes, and some scary footage from Italy. This is not science. They completely panicked. The public health cast, or clerisy, you know, they came in, and they're all for the sort of Neil Ferguson from Imperial College. This is a man whose modeling has been wrong going back decades. He was wrong about foot and mouth disease, caused all sorts of animals. He was wrong about bovine spongiform encephalopathy, mad cow disease. He was so wrong about that, you know, by a factor of about 100 orders of magnitude. Um, and so, you know, they had these models, and most of the politicians didn't stand up to the scaremongering. Even Trump, now to be fair to Trump, you know, Deborah Burks came in and she admits in her book she basically lied to him. She told him there's going to be people dying on the streets. Now, and Boris, you know, he would still be prime minister if he followed the Swedish model. He'd look great. You know, he, he yep. sees himself as a latter-day Churchill, but he wasn't Churchill. He caved in completely. I know that he opened up faster than some countries, but it was too late by then. I mean, they so they spent like drunk and stuff. So I, I think partly it was most People who go through journalism school get imbued with left-wing indoctrination, sort of, uh, you know, oppression studies, and and so the kind of people who come out in journal, they're not, they're not, they're not inquisitive, they're not curious, they didn't read the data, and the whole press became sort of part of a fear porn thing. You'd just be reporting the, less, the latest death numbers. There are more people dying now. You yeah. have a higher death rate now, and you're not seeing any death count on TV every day. It was crazy what they were doing. They weren't thinking. They weren't skeptical. And it was really, you know, so they, as you say, Adam, they scared people. And people thought, you know, they're going to die. They did studies in Britain during the COVID, the worst of COVID. And, and people thought their chances of dying were 30% if they caught it. You know, they now know unvaccinated, if you're under 70, it was about the same as the flu, a little bit higher for some people. So the only people who had to worry were people who were morbidly obese yep. or in their, you know, 75 plus. But the thing is, I don't think there's a country where during I don't know that there's a country. The last time I looked there wasn't where the average age of covid deaths was lower than the life expectancy. So basically the people who were dying were already past the expected life expectancy. Now, you know, nobody wants them to die and we should focus protection on these people but you're going to ruin the lives of the entire sort of country this is crazy what they were doing there was no cost benefit analysis there was no sensible looking at what's going on it was a disgrace it was the worst public policy you know uh the former supreme court judge from the uk a lord sumption he said it was the worst inroads on our civil liberties in 300 years clearly right you know, I get tired of all the sort of hum- self-styled human rights people who tell us, you know, that Australia is a terrible country the way we treat some, you know, accused terrorist. They didn't say a word during the whole COVID. The entire Human Rights Commission, every single one of the uh, commissioners, by the way, was appointed by the coalition. And not one of them said anything about overreach or thuggishness or de- not a single word during the whole two years. These are coalition appointees. You know, the right of center gets in and they don't appoint conservatives to bodies. They appoint these sort of weak, milk toast, barely center right people. 
they couldn't even summon up the will to criticize Dan Anders, which, of course, you know, no Scott Morrison has yet to ever say a word um, criticizing Dan Anders. So, I mean, if any, I mean, the one good thing is that Scott Morrison lost. I'm glad he lost. Yeah. And I'm glad they lost. They deserve to lose. Yeah, but who is the and hope? Maybe it's a bit of a wake up call. Yeah, but who is the hope of the side for you if you can't look to Morrison? Who is there? Well, I quite like Peter Dutton, but apparently he's a hostage somewhere filming a hostage video or he has yet to escape and actually say anything on anything important. I have no idea what he's doing. I like him, but so far he hasn't, you know, the voice, bad idea. It's bad in principle. It's bad when you do cost-benefit analysis. You shouldn't have race-based uh, items in your constitution. He hasn't said anything about that. It seems like he's playing a tactical game. He's going to wait till labor comes out. You know, why did he make Julian Leeser the uh, spokesperson, the opposition minister for Aboriginal affairs, you know, or even the attorney general? The guy, Leeser, he's a nice person, but he was against repeal of the Section 18C hate speech laws. You make him attorney general and he's, you know, he's been a committed adherent to this voice proposal. You make him. What are you thinking? And so I don't know what Dutton's doing. I mean, he's better than Morrison and he's had you know, cojones, and he took out, he helped take out uh, Turnbull, that's good. But so far, he's barely said a word. Now, maybe maybe it's a tactical, strategic decision, you know, early days, there's nothing much you can do, I don't know. I, I like to think that's it. Um, but kind of like a... Um... So I, Canada's, I, I, I'm Canadian, native Canadian, haven't lived there since the late 80s, but the new opposition leader in Canada... Poilivier, great so far. The woman who's just become premier of Alberta is fantastic. Poilivier, by the way, marched with the trucker protesters. Can mm. you imagine a liberal leader actually getting out there and protesting? No. Uh. And here's the new uh, opposition leader saying what Trudeau did to the truckers was a disgrace. It was. The leader in Alberta, she's really good, Danielle Smith. So there's signs. Uh, who can not like DeSantis? Yeah. You know, he, he, he locked down for two weeks, realized he'd made a mistake. He had all the data. He argued with the reporters when they asked questions. He knew more than they did. He read all the studies. Tremendous. And everything he did, you know, he went from winning in 2018 by 30,000 votes. It was basically a 50%, 50% election to winning 60% to 40% last week, two wow. weeks ago. Yeah. I mean, now part of that is, they never closed the borders and in internal borders in any other country. So a lot of Americans who were in Michigan or New York, they just moved to Florida. Yeah. So one of the reasons he won by so much is, is, you know, there's been a movement within the U S and people who don't like lockdowns have just moved to Florida, but he also won a lot of people who realized he got it right. And so he's the hope for the side. Now, these things always go in waves, but the problem right now is not the center left left wing parties. The problem is our side of politics. We're getting careerists. They go to university. They they become sort of politicians at university for the you know the university liberal party. They become you know Matt Keene type liberal lefties, yeah. and then they win all the pre selections. You know, we are not pre-selecting people. I would not pre-select anyone who hasn't had a real job yeah. for at least 10 years. 
So yeah. all these people are doing the pre-select. Stop pre-selecting people who are ministerial aides. Yeah. Stop pre-selecting people who work at think tanks. Like zero. Even if they walk on water, don't pre-select them until they've had a real job. Exactly because right. You know, they're pre-selecting useless people, if I can put it that way. Well, that's right, because those those kind of people have basically, as you said, gone from school into a sweet job that they don't have to chase the dollar, they don't have to really worry about anything, they don't have to, like in my in my instance, personally, you know, I've had to, um, I went through the ranks, you know, I was a, I became a tradesman, I went to factory work, I've done office work, and then I've gone through to start my own business. And then what happens is I've had to chase work, I have to, um, I've, I know what it's like not to be able to put food on the table. I know what it's like when electricity prices go up. I know what it's like every every you know three months when the the gas bill and electricity bill comes in. And if there's a you know a hundred dollar rise, you know sometimes that's a matter of like, well, now I'm going to go work Saturday and Sunday to make sure that that one gets paid on time. So if they haven't had anything any experience like that, I, I find as you're saying that you know they're losing touch with the people. And when they keep pre-selecting people like that in. Um, the disparity gets bigger and bigger and bigger. I, I believe. I think you're right. And they need to fire all the all the political advisors. They're all risk averse. You know, they're, they're the, the evidence from around the Anglosphere is that the inner city seats are gone. People think that rich people vote right. That was true 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Wealthy people now vote left. The left. 100 wealthiest counties in the U.S. in 2016 all voted for Hillary Clinton. You know, the, wow. so the left-wing parties are sort of today a coalition of the sort of human rights barrister type people. They're super wealthy, the wealthy and the very poor and on welfare. That's your left-wing coalition. The the right now represents the working class. That's and, right. you know, people who've gone to university or the university, they vote left. And it's a bigger group of people. We've seen this in Britain in the 2019 election. But the that you're going to set your policies for the inner city sort of wokesters, you know, Morrison lost the last election simply by signing up to net zero. Yeah. He couldn't differentiate himself. Even John Howard has become a bit soft and left, in my view, since he left office. But even John Howard said, this is crazy. So they had, you know, you're not going to win an election when you say they're, they're going to get to net zero in, in 2030, but we're going to wait till 2031 and a half. I'm being facetious. That's not a winning argument. You've you've sold the you've sold the core foundation, and so these people just need we need to get politicians who have a bit of a background. They're out there. I like Antic a lot. Um, yep. Matt Canavan is fantastic. He can't even you know he can't even get into cabinet because he doesn't want to he doesn't want to subscribe to the orthodox the sort of woke orthodoxy. He's a little proud. You know I I. Get rid of a little proud. I know that uh, Kenavan's in the Senate, but you know, get him, get him a safe seat, put him in the lower house, make him leader of the of the Nats. You know, we'd all be voting Nats if he were leader. That's it's right. a weird and thing. I got here in two thousand and five, and the politician I probably have the most. Um, well, I was going to say two thousand and five. Uh, I mean, I I I, uh, I find that there's almost no liberal politicians I have much in common with. It's really sad. Yeah, I, I like um I do like Senator Alex Antich. I think that um I think liberals should I think he should work his way towards the top quicker than maybe he should because um you know that would I like the way that he talks and I like the way he stands and I like that he has actually the backbone to kind of stand against you know 
the leftist um, ideologies. Um, even just going up in a recent article where um, a, um, what do you call it, crossdresser was reading a reading a book, um, the girl's famous suit or something like that on the ABC to to children, and then he called him out on that, and then he's copped a lot of flack, you know, saying transphobic and whatnot. And well, then, they you know, cop a lot of flack in in uh, Twitter, but you know they've done studies in the US. Uh, about five percent of people post regularly on Twitter, and those kind of people, when they look at their views, equate to the most left wing of the four hundred and thirty five uh, house districts in the entire U.S. So, you know, Twitter is not a representation of views. We have to stop catering to the views in Twitter. Just ignore them. Yes. Uh, I was going to say the, the sort of the politician I find I have the most in common with, which is incredible, is Mark Latham. Oh, most good. things. Mark Latham, I mean, I, I, you know, I don't want to be, I don't want to be in the game of criticizing people, but I think if, if one nation had him as their national leader, they'd jump about five points in the polls. Uh, not that Pauline Hanson isn't good, she is, but as a national politician, she's just not in the same league as Mark Latham, and Mark Latham would, I think he'd see one nation jump to 10 points in the polls anyway. And and basically make it almost impossible for the libs to win an election without, you know, moving a bit to the right. That's my view. Could be wrong, but I really like him. Most of his views are good. I I uh, I wish he'd leave New South Wales and go national. Well, not he's not allowed to leave New South Wales um, until he um, passes all his information on to myself, because yeah. uh, Mark's actually um, taken well. I like to say he's taken me under his wing just a little bit. He's showing me the ropes. He's trying to give me as much help and as information as I can so I can be the best politician I can be. I'm I'm also a centre-right. I'm conservative. I believe in little government and, um, you know, and I just want to try and learn from who I believe is one of the best politicians as well um, to try and, you know, because what happens is somebody's got to um, take the torch. They're everyone, all our, you know, he's, you know, he's a good, great politician. He's, you know, pretty healthy and fit, but you know, like he's not going to be around forever in in the political game, and who's going to take who's going to take the lead? Who's going to take the torch? Some of us yeah. new newbies have yeah. to come through and learn from some of these old amazing politicians who stand actually stand by what they believe in, and that's. I will, um, tell, what, I will tell Mark you called them old. Oh, don't, don't do that! Don't you that? Don't you write that? Um, <laughs> well, I didn't. I didn't. Young and later tonight. <laughs> well, I'll, I'll try and send him an email quicker than you so that I'll get you my side of the story first. <laughs> but you did bring up a really good point I, about... I, I, um, I believe hate. I heard old and decrepit, but maybe, I, maybe I'm imagining the decrepit ah. bit. <laughs> oh, I said, I, said, I, said he's, I said he's I said he's fit and healthy, but, you know, he's getting older and uh, he's not going to be in the political realm forever. That's what I was saying. So you can oh, quote okay. me on that one. But um, I, you, you brought up a really good point um, a few minutes ago regarding hate speech. And I and I did a little bit, doing my little bit of research to ask you some decent questions. Um, you know, so I know that you're really disappointed in the Liberal government allowing the uh, the hate speech 18A or C go C. through. C. C. 18C. They didn't allow it says, to go through. They, they, you know, they tried to repeal it, but they, you know, half the party room was against repealing it. So this is basically a license to outlaw being offended. No one has a right to be not to be offended. Part of the give and take of democratic life is you have to put up with people who don't agree with you. And if they say things that offend you, well, reply to them and suck it up. And this is, you know, you don't get to be a delicate wallflower. Well, you do. Now you do. You do. And, you know, that that Bolt case was pathetic. 
you know, Bolt was just pointing out that when you're in the game of having affirmative action benefits, a hell of a lot of them for Aboriginals are going to people who look to be one 128th Aboriginal. Do we really want to be giving out benefits to people where seven of their great-great-grandparents were oppressing the eighth? This is crazy, right? So I don't like affirmative action for anybody, but if we're going to have affirmative action, you think it would be targeted at people who actually have some sort of lineal descent, not sort of some barely noticeable lineal descent. And just even saying that, they, you know, the judge said he didn't like Bolt's tone. Well, who cares what the judge thinks about somebody's tone? Since when does tone matter? You ought to be able to be bitingly sarcastic. And the fact that the, you know, the, the Liberal Party room, and this was a bad problem by Abbott. I think he was advised badly. I don't know if it was Peter Credlin, but it would have been better for him to put repeal to the, you know, force it through the party room and make the Senate vote it down. He lost a lot of support for caving in on 18C repeal. And I don't know that he'd do it again. And, you know, George Brandis was terrible at his appointments to the courts and everywhere else. But Brandis is right. You know, if you're going to have protections for, for free speech, it includes everyone, even bigots. Nobody likes bigots, but you know your response to a bigot is to say why they're wrong. Yeah. Martin Luther King didn't say we should silence bigots. He said we should show they're morons, and I'm all for yeah. that. Mm. So, I, well, you know, the, whole, the lack of vigor and commitment to principle in the center-right parties is, is, is just so on display, and we saw it all through the pandemic again. You know, they yeah. had no core values. It doesn't, even if you thought that this disease was slightly worse than the flu or three times worse than the flu, and we knew from the Diamond Princess it was never, never going to look like Spanish flu. But even if you thought that, you still have a commitment to liberty and to freedom and to leaving people to make their own calls. Well, that apparently is not true. And, yeah. you know, I, you know, part of me wants to see some of these people you know, sued into bankruptcy or something because they were just shockingly bad. And I don't know if the, you know, it's hard to see who the next leader is going to be who's got a link to this sort of tainted response to these things. Maybe I'm wrong. You know, an apology would help. As I said, we haven't seen any apologies. Well, I can't say these people are still apology. pretending that they made the calls that are right. You know, as you read the data pour in, they just didn't. They made all the wrong calls. Mm. And they're doubling down again. In, yeah, even in Queensland, you're still you're in amber. You're in amber. Oh, no, well, I, uh, you know, I'm just, I'm not wearing a mask. So they can put me no. in jail. Well, that, yeah. I've already said so that you too. Have so to that line. Yeah. I've, I've said no it too. There's no evidence of masks. You know, when you look at the studies that show masks do anything, they're, they're, um, they're mannequin studies where they take a mannequin, put a mask, and they, they spray liquid at it. Well, of course, masks stop liquid, but most of the pandemic, it's an aerosol. And I was at a, on a panel with Jay Bhattacharya in Melbourne a while back, great man, came out to Australia basically just for the flights. He didn't ask for any money, gave some great talks. And you know, he said, there's no evidence that masks do anything. Now, if someone's going to argue with that, realize you're arguing with one of the 10 best epidemiologists in the world. Let's have some evidence. What are you pointing to? Well, well purely, when you ask purely people that, they, they point to non-randomized control tests. They point to mannequin studies. Even if you just look at uh, how different counties did in the U.S. or how different states did. You know, Florida did it as well as California. Florida unmasked, up to you. 
California sort of mimicking Dan Andrews, more or less, and they, they'd have no better outcome. So what's going on here? Anyway, I'm, I'm getting worked up about the lockdowns and the vaccine mandates. A lot of people had their lives ruined, and I, yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for those people. Yeah. Well, I think there's also another effect as well because what happened was, like, I know in my in my in my career in my business, we had actually because um, it falls under personal health security and safety, we were able to continue to work. So what happened was it kind of changed the flow of the year that we've had for. I've been in the trade for 15 years. And, you know, what happens is it ramps up at Christmas time, then drops off after Christmas, and then it plateaus out um, up until tax time. After tax time or just before tax time, people start buying. And then and you so you build your structure and your business and kind of over that. So you kind of make your money at Christmas time, and then what happens is you um, – and then it gets you through until it picks up again in August when we have our first 30-degree day. Um, what happened was now it, it threw that whole cycle out of, out of sync and what, what we're finding now is is that actually, like, I, I'm my business now is going to struggle for the next year because everyone's already spent their money on doing their products and stuff like that. And that's okay because I'm conservative, I've saved, and I'll get through it, and there's no dramas like that. But a lot of businesses, you know, same thing. You know, they spend and spend and kind of spend. Yeah. And what happens is it's it's it, – so I think that you're going to see a side effect of – um, the pandemic over the last two and a half years, not just in the students at school who were already behind in New South Wales by five years to their peers overseas, but we're going to we're, find even out before the pandemic, we were down there with Kazakhstan. Now yeah. I figure we're battling it out with Sierra Leone for you know bottom spot in the. We have terrible education results, yeah. and yeah, there's some evidence now that the students who actually had their parents teaching them for two years are no worse off than the students before the pandemic. That's how bad our education system is, and we made it worse. Almost impossible. I agree. And what we do is we tend to throw money at it. People don't realize that the evidence is up to when you really spend very little, money actually has some correlative effect. But once you get to a certain level, more money does not correlate with better results. What you need is teachers who stand at the front of the class and expect you people to listen. Yes. You need... You need old-fashioned sort of teaching style, so none of this whole language garbage. You want to go with yeah, phonetics, yeah. you know, yeah. phonics, phonetics, whatever you call it, where you yeah. sound out words. And so, you know, over the first three months, those kids are a little behind whole language because the kids memorize a hundred words pretty quickly, and they look like they can read. But then they run out of they run out of gas, and the kids who learn how to sound out words once they get the hang of it. They catch up very quickly, and then they just huh. shoot past. And, and keep going because they can learn the rules. Because they, they have some the rules for sounding out words. You know, English That's is tough. Nice. Yeah, so there's some things you do have to memorize, like through, though, tough. You know, the O-U-G-H is just random. Yeah. But, um, you know, so, and, you know, the, the, the English curriculum in this country is appalling. So there's a lot of problems, but we made it worse during the pandemic. I totally agree with that. Absolutely. Sorry, Adam, I forget. I What's your, did you say your business was razors and shaving? I forget what you said it was. <laughs> uh, yeah. Steve told me it was, it was something like that. I can't remember. I did have, I did yeah. have Stanley knives, but what happened was, see, um, you know, I went bold and I still needed to be able to run my fingers through my hair. I'm not oh. lucky enough to have head of hairs like you guys, you know what I mean? So I had to grow it elsewhere. Well, it's not supposed to be you running your fingers through your hair. That's supposed to be your wife. But I just, <laughs> oh, okay. I, well, yeah. after I'll the pandemic. 
she she has to see now she has to work in the private she's not even she she's not even around anymore because she always has to work away now because um she found a job where she was a registered nurse and she lost her job through the mandates and now you know three three days a week she's not at home so i don't even get that anymore so where is she now well she works she works in the private sector as um as, as a home carer right and she so she lives in so she lives in to people's she lives in with people in people's homes and then when she's not doing that, and you and Steve, you're in Sydney, or are you North, Northern New South Wales? I heard. No, I'm in Sydney. We're both in Sydney, yeah. So I'm in the Northern mm-hmm. Beaches, and Adam is out west in in um, Campbelltown area. Campbelltown. I, I lost my job during the pandemic, so you know we all we all experienced it in different ways, and it was a, a crazy time. And, and people think that we can just move on to other things, and some of us have kind of been left behind. Going, hang on a second, like. Uh, have you managed to snag another job? Yeah, no, I've, uh, you know, you, you slowly crawl your claw your way back, and uh, I mean, I'm I'm back in a, a pretty decent position now, so I'm happy with that. But uh, you know, going back a year a year ago it was quite traumatic. You don't, you know, you face you faced with the prospect of uh, not being able to pay your mortgage. I only had a two month old daughter. Uh, you know, waking up yeah, every morning. Yeah, it's, it's it was brutal. And mean, cool. Meanwhile, the people who made every lockdown decision, they bore none of the costs. You know, no. Nassim Taleb says you only trust people who have skin in the game. They had yep. no skin in the game. They didn't suffer any of the consequences. They were making great decisions. They, you know, they 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 didn't they didn't have to pay any of the costs. If you had a system where all of the public service and all of the politicians lost a third of their income while the lockdowns were in place, they wouldn't have been in place for very long. No, definitely you not. Know? And so this idea that people who pay none of the costs, like the entire public health clerisy, they pour they bore none of the costs. And if they started bearing the cost and they, you know, sort of had a hard time with their mortgages and they had a hard time paying their school fees, whatever, they would have been a little bit more open to arguments that this is a bad idea. Again, <laughs> everybody knew this before the pandemic. We one of the things that surprised me was how sheep-like Australians were. I, I bought a shirt from the U.S. that shows sort of apes evolving into humans and then into sheep because I don't know what happened to Australians. I, 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 I think Clive James was right. He, he, he joked at one point before he died that Australians think they've you know, descended from, from convicts, but no, they've descended from jailers, jail wardens. And I think that's right. I mean, the... Australians were some of the most compliant, uh, obedient people on the planet. And this just shocked me. The idea that Australians were sort of larrikins turns out to be completely false. Yeah, I mean, how did we go from global one? Pathetic. And the more you are worth, the higher your net value, the more sheep like you were. Yeah. So this sort of challenges, yeah, this challenges some of my right of center, you know, pro market small government views because the kind of people who've done well they really just bug me the way they were so pathetically sheep-like yeah i know it, it was I, I was gonna say how do we go from world war ii where we were notorious for uh being larrikins and not taking orders we weren't taking the british orders you know we, we kind of fight our own battles we, that's a lot of uh culture was built on that people who withstood the blitz and, yeah, uh, I know. I know. Spitfire pilots had a life expectancy of two weeks during the battle. And yeah. you no, know, 
COVID barely changed your life expectancy at all unless you were obese or over 80. And people were pretending, you know, we went we went back to North America and Britain both Christmases. We had to apply to get out. I mean, really, this was not bravery on our part. This was just reading the data. And this overreach by bureaucrats, really annoying, really, really annoying. Well, you know what I think the problem is? Larrikinism. Sorry, Stephen, with this Australian larrikinism and all that kind of stuff and our, you know, kick-ass kind of attitude, I mean, you see people flying the sticker of Ned Kelly and such is life, and I'm from Canberra, mm-hmm. I'm from the heartland, you know, and, like, Ned Kelly was, you know, I mean, he was a bandit, you know, he was a, he was a bush ranger, he stood against the law, and people idolise this guy and, you know, he's like a, he, he's a hero, he's a folklore hero of, of Australia, even though he was probably a criminal. <laughs> but what yeah, I'm saying well, is like... Were, I mean, and one, another thing that, you know, I grew up in a sort of lower middle class family in Toronto. I, I was probably the most pro-police law professor in the country. But pandemic really changed my view of the police. I, I always stood up for the police. They have a hard job. and But the way they behaved, and it wasn't really their fault as much as the politicians and the senior police officers, but they were thugs. Yeah. Just watch some of the clips from... Victoria or New South Wales, some of the things these police officers did, they should be ashamed of themselves. And so, you know, I, I've sort of changed my mind. These police officers, not all of them, there's a minority, but, you know, there's, you, you've all seen the clips of them throwing people to the ground and handcuffing pregnant women. Anybody who handcuffs a pregnant woman, you know, just, just you should be ashamed to look at yourself in the mirror. Yeah. So it was pathetic, and 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 so it's really cheap. now. This was mostly Victoria, but also in other states, not just here in this country. Britain, Canada it was a little better in some U.S. states. You know, one of the great things of being on this show is, if I call out and ask my wife for another glass of wine, I have zero chance normally. But being on this podcast, I have a bit of a chance. So I'm going to test this theory. Go and do it, <laughs> Heather. Heather. Can you bring me a glass of wine, please? This might work. It's going to happen. It's going to happen. Lucky not, no lefties watch this show. We'll see. I'm called. We'll see. See where we've got friends in the back. They're already drinking. So. Oh, yeah, nice. I, yeah. Sunday well, night. Thank you. You're, you're, well, you're you for giving us your time. Yeah, yeah, thank you very much. We're probably well, hang on. I want to see if this works. Oh, it's, it's going to work. There's zero chance it'll work. <laughs> but uh, well, we, we had we, we had a probably um, 100 no. law questions. Look at this, guys. Oh, Onto the screen. Success. Ta-da! Yay! <laughs> All right. I said, there's no chance you'd ever bring me a glass of wine if I weren't on the podcast. <laughs> you see? The virtues of the podcast. That was amazing. Yeah. But we, we as you're a professor of law, we have a like, we have a whole bunch of questions we want to ask you. We're running a bit low on time, so I'm going to give you the the choice. We're going to ask you one about Glenn Jury down in, uh, in Victoria and what your views on that was. If you've seen the interview that's come out recently when he was speaking to uh, one of the one of the freedom parties, and the other thing is a bill of rights and whether we should have it in Australia. So you get to choose which one you want to talk about. Whether we talk about bill well, of rights, Glenn Jury is the he's the preference whisperer, isn't he? Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah. yeah, well, you know, small parties have to be careful. You can't trust these guys. I mean, he's done good stuff in the but he got he got suckered really. What can you say? Probably not going to play out very well. 
sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. I don't really like pref- I don't really like proportional voting systems. So um, the problem with the Bill of Rights is this: people all on the you know on the right side of politics. I'm against bills of rights. They they read them and they think, oh, right to free speech. I'll be able to say anything. You know, they they imagine it's some sort of absolute. But there's all sorts of limits on free speech. The most constitutional protections on speech in the world is the U.S. You can say way more on a on an Australian university campus than you can in the U.S. There's all sorts of limits. So when you buy a Bill of Rights, you're effectively buying the views of the judges. Now, you know, you might not like unelected politicians, but let me tell you, you got a better chance of getting a sort of halfway decent compromise than you do from the judges. The entire legal profession is noticeably to the left of the median voter. And so what a Bill of Rights does is it sells a certain set of entitlements in the language of rights. So everyone gets this free song of excitement down their spine, right to free speech, right to freedom of religion. And they think, oh, I can say anything or I can do anything in the name of my religion. But there's all sorts of limits. The problem is that the limits are applied by the judiciary. The judiciary decides where your limits on speech are. And their views are way to the left of the median voter. You buy a Bill of Rights, you buy the views of the writer, of the judges. So we don't have a Bill of Rights in this country, but we have this implied freedom of political communication that the judges have made up out of thin air back in the early 90s. And from that first case, the ACTV case, you know, you can strike down legislation if it, you know, seems to be a limit on them on speech related to elections. There have been five times when the judges have done it. Every single time it's been Liberal Party legislation, right? They never have struck down labor legislation since that original case, which was labor legislation. So I I told members of the Liberal Democrats that they would not win the case that went to the high court on, on the name of the party, you know? So the problem with the Bill of Rights is you imagine that you've got these, these sort of omniscient beings, but... It, now, Bill of Rights is is effectively selling you moral entitlements in very vague, amorphous terms. And when you bring it down to the sort of quagmire of day-to-day decision-making, it's real-life people who have to make the calls. And either the calls are made by the elected legislature, where you have some input and some they have some accountability, or the calls, as in the U.S., as in Canada, as in Britain, are made by unelected judges. Now, maybe if you have a federalist society and maybe if you have a President Trump appointing your judges, you have some hope of getting half-decent outcomes. But, you know, if you look at that love decision where they just made up this differential treatment for, you know, people claiming Aboriginal descent not to be deported, the judges in the majority, it was a four-to-three case, three out of the four judges were appointed by George Brandis. The Liberal Party appointees to the High Court of Australia are probably worse than the Labour appointees. Anyone who goes down the path of a Bill of Rights just doesn't understand how the world works. I am completely against Bills of Rights. I understand that, you know, if you if you imagine that you're going to just transplant Gorsuch over from the U.S., but you're not going to get that. You're not going to get a late 18th century Bill of Rights. You're going to get a post-World War II Bill of Rights. They're going to be doing all of this proportionality analysis you're going to have, you know, people who have been educated in the milieu of woke lefty law school. And why you would want those people to be making the sort of social policy making calls, debatable calls is beyond me. Keep them out of it as much as possible is my view and let the elected, at least where you have some recourse. And so I don't know, I've never, 
been in, I, you know, I've debated on bills. I've never, people who think that a bill of rights good just don't know, you know, and this is a word from the philosophy of science. They don't know the facts, <laughs> if I can put it in those terms. So this is a bad thing. And there's no obvious way to make it better. You cannot uh, translate the American Bill of Rights. And forget that. If Hillary Clinton had won the election in 2016, she would have appointed judges. You'd have a very different set of First Amendment jurisprudence. Yeah. Right. You know, ultimately, you are hostage to the kind of judges who bring these bizarre interpretive approaches where, you know, basically it looks like they're making it up at the point of application. So I would recommend to people to run at the first sound of a bill of rights terrible idea so what you're saying just in lay terms is basically it would be a bill of rights to today's climate not like what they have in well, America what i'm saying is bills done. of rights don't interpret themselves they are sort of ambit claims where there's all sorts of built-in limits so you don't know what they're going to be and the people doing the limiting are real life judges from today yeah. judges who are chosen by the labor party or by you know, the left wing of the Liberal Party, the yeah. sort of George Brandis's of the world. And if you think they're going to deliver the results you want, you're deluding yourself. Yeah. It's better to leave the calls with the politicians, however flawed they are. At least you can bring political pressure to bear and they're accountable. So and I kick them no out after three wrong. years. Sorry? And kick them out after three years if they don't do what out. you want them to do. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, wow. I want to see you guys call your wives and get, get you to bring them something. My wife's not even at home. <laughs> oh, sure. Cheap answer. I mean, I feel like I've delivered on this front. Where are you guys? I get my <laughs> wife to bring me stuff before the podcast. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Talk is cheap. Don't prepare. See, we do yeah, this every week. No evidence so. for that. No evidence. I promise. I promise next, time, next time I do a podcast, um, right, not tonight because obviously my wife's not home, but I will make a point to call her and bring her something. So if you do see it, you'll see me do it. I'll make okay, good on the well, promise. Let's hope that's true. Yeah. Awesome. Oh, well, uh, Professor Allen, thank you very much for coming on. We could talk to you all night. Unfortunately, we can't tonight, but uh, we'd love to have you on again in the future because you just seem to be across so many issues and you have such a good opinion that I tend to agree with a lot of the time. I, I don't know about Adam, but he probably does as well. So thank you very, very much for coming on. How can people follow your work? Well, I don't really do social media, but I write for The Spectator Australia, which is you know, a great magazine. And if you support it, you're supporting the one publication in the world that stood up against lockdowns from day one, from Esther Kerr, Rebecca Weiser, me. So that's good. Occasionally I'm in the Australian law and liberty in the U.S., conservative woman. So I write from all sorts of things. But, uh, you know, I think people should sign up to the Daily Skeptic coming out of Britain. It's a great, great, uh, they get about a million people every, you know, they send something out every day. That's Toby Young free. You know, they yep. ask you to donate. There's some great publications out there. Um, but again, thank you guys. I've really enjoyed being on the show and it's nice to have people, you know, compliment me the way my mom does. So you don't get that very <laughs> often. I normally speak and people hate me. So I'm sort of I'm more at home where people hate me. <laughs> well thank you very much for your time we love but well, i've enjoyed listening to you speak every time i've heard you speak and i've been watching some of your video videos now that are on um youtube and things like that so um it's, it's been a great pleasure actually to have you on so i do th thank you very much well thanks guys and i'm now heading out to deal with my friends and have some more drinks so bonsoir bonsoir okay. see you mate Good night. see you next time thanks